Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. There's a surprising link between archaeology and modern infrastructure projects. Now, modern infrastructure projects can be colossal in scale, but sometimes they run into headaches where they find and unearth huge archaeological treasures. In other cases, sometimes archaeological treasures can unveil huge infrastructure projects that were done in the past in surprising ways. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. In engineering, I worked in a very large multidisciplinary engineering That might sound weird and a lot of jargony words, but it meant that that team, that large company, had in its employ people all the way from archaeologists down to zoologists. This struck me as odd. I was a control systems engineer working on water systems and power plants. Why did we need an archaeologist or a zoologist? That A to Z full spectrum coverage was really confusing to me, and I didn't quite understand. It was only after I, I had done a few projects and met a few people from other divisions and departments that I realised that when you do a big infrastructure project, the chances of you needing something that's outside of the ordinary is really high. You might excavate somewhere where all of a sudden you need an expert in archaeological remains, how to properly handle the deceased remains of a particular culture, or you may run into an environmental consideration where you are analysing what is the exact species that we have discovered here and the potential environmental impacts of it. All of these things can put pave to hundreds of millions of dollars of infrastructure planning, so it's really important to get right when you identify them. And so, big companies like the one I used to work for actually had all these people on staff, paleontologists, archaeologists, zoologists, you name it, because you need them to help analyse the situation as you discover it. That seems strange if you're an engineer who just wants to build a bridge, a tunnel, a road, a large pipe network, or a power plant. But these roles are crucially important to delivering projects that actually care and engage with the environment around them. Now, a good example of this has just been published in the New Zealand Journal of Geology and Geophysics. In this particular paper, they talk about discovering 266 fossil species, one of the richest and most diverse group of 3 million year old fauna ever to be found in New Zealand. And the thing is, this treasure trove of fossils was discovered when a large water utility in New Zealand, Auckland's Water Care, was excavating two massive vertical shafts that was part of a major upgrade program for handling raw sewage. Now, I used to deal with water networks and sewage networks in my career. And I understand fully how complicated finding a place to get sewage from one part of the city in a major pipeline to another where your treatment plant is. And in 2020, this was exactly Auckland's water care's problem. They had to find some way with enough rise and fall to be able to successfully flow that sewage from the centre of town out to where the water treatment plant was, sewage treatment plant in this case. Now, when they were digging for this large shaft and tunnel network, they 
dug through something that was actually paleontologically really, really interesting. What they found was like finding gold right on your doorstep, as paleontologist Bruce Hayward from Auckland describes. Once they realised that they'd struck some fossils, they passed it on to the respective parties and say, hey, can you take a look at this? We think we've stumbled onto something. And this was enough for Watercare to actually fund two paleontology graduate students working under Auckland Museum's curator, Dr. Wilhelm Blum, to actually sift through the heaps of the till of the spoil from all of that digging for weeks. And as a result, they estimated that there are around 300,000 fossils that were examined, and several thousand of them have actually been returned to the museum as a record of this once-in-a-lifetime fossil. seems like a crazy amount, but if you imagine how much dirt that you have to dig through, to dig anywhere in a large city, it's not that surprising. And if you manage to literally dig through a huge fossil record, well then, yeah, of course, you're going to end up with a lot of fossils. And to be clear, we're talking a lot here about fossil species that are relatively small, not massive in size. It's not like they're digging through 30,000 Tyrannosaurus rexes. Not that big, but still reasonable enough that it's pretty fascinating to study. Now, the detailed identification of these fossils performed by the archaeological team dates these as being between 3 and 3.7 million years ago uh, in a subtitled channel that would have been part of the modern part of Manuka Harbour in Auckland. At that time, you would have seen the sea level being slightly higher than it is today. And most of those species would have actually been subtropical species, who are used to living in warmer waters, where you would find more likely today around the Comedic and Norfolk Islands. Now, when they looked at the species that they discovered, there were at least, at least, 10 previously unknown species, and these were all written up and studied. And what's surprising is that the fauna contains fossils that lived in many different types of environments. Now, in ancient time, three million years ago, this marine channel would have been behaving very differently. The conditions, the wave actions, and the strong tidal currents actually aggregated all types of marine species that aren't necessarily that common nowadays because, well, the environment in New Zealand, the position in the world and the temperatures of the ocean and the sea levels have all changed since then. So three million years ago is not the same place as now. But the fossil record of that time is fascinating because it includes 10 specimens of what is considered iconic New Zealand species, like the New Zealand flax snail. It must have lived on the adjacent land and then potentially been washed off the land into the sea by stormwater runoff. These are what they've seen in this fossil record, the oldest known examples of flax snails in the world. Most of these fossils lived on the seafloor some of them in estuaries or really brackish areas, others attached to hard rocky shorelines, but some, like the snails, have been carried offshore from being on the land and washed away in a large storm. They've even found some pretty amazing things, like they managed to isolate out a baleen whale vertebra, a broken sperm whale tooth, the spine of an extinct 
sawshaft. This is all huge amounts of fossils that have been captured in this one location. And this location just happens to be where Watercare was digging a particular sewage pipe network. But this is the challenge that we face in the modern era, as outlined by researchers like Bruce Haywood and others as published in the New Zealand Journal of Geological and Geophysics. When you do any large project that interacts with the world around you, chances are you're going to run into something. In this case, they ran into a crazy amount of fossils. But in other cases, sometimes it might be large amounts of contaminated soil filled with toxic chemicals that need environmental irradiation. Other times you might not run into a large number of things, but might be very culturally significant, a particular gravesite, for example. All of these things can make building what seems like a simple task, like a house, a freeway, a building, a pipe network, things that we need in the modern world, one way or another. But they can be held up by discoveries like this. But they're not impositions, they're not bad things. They are opportunities for scientific breakthrough and discovery, like in this case here, where Watercare has stumbled upon probably the richest fossil record of three million year old snapshot into what was happening in New Zealand, finding all kinds of fossil records from land-based creatures to sea creatures of shapes and sizes that are hugely varying. This is an amazing thing to find, not an imposition, and should be studied in a museum, which it is being studied at Auckland Museum. And that's one of the great parts about engineering and science. Some place, times you start off at a place you don't expect and end up somewhere else entirely. In this case, when trying to build a sewage network, they managed to find a huge amount of fossils, which helped them learn about the way the environment and the fauna of New Zealand have changed over the last three million years. This paper was published in the journal New Zealand Journal of Geology and Geophysics with lead author Bruce Hayward, along with others including Thomas Strawberg, Nathan Collins, Alan G, and Vilma Plon. The capturing of water, harnessing it for human use. If you're a fan of history, you might know that this is what enabled potentially cities to get to a certain size. Places in Sumeria, our first cities in, that have existed on Earth, and other places across the world, like in China and Vietnam and other places, that needed to handle huge volumes of water on a regular basis. They got good really quickly, in very ancient times, of doing large-scale engineering projects, as we would consider them today, to handle and manipulate water. Because without that, they would flood, their crops would be destroyed, people's homes and lives would be at risk. And it's required not just praying to the gods, the correct offerings, but also really good engineering. And so we know that people have been dealing and handling water for thousands of years here on Earth. 
but we often hear about how Roman engineers were able to have what we would consider modern-style plumbing. But Rome wasn't the only place. If you can handle floodwaters of the Yangtze River, well, you can probably handle a smaller flow as well. In a study published in the journal Nature Water, an archaeological team from China have been investigating a really intricate pipe network in Pingyangtai area in China, dating around 4,000 years ago, in the time period known as the Hongshan period. Now, what it shows is that there was a lot of people cooperating in this community 4,000 years ago to build what was a pretty intricate and well-connected ceramic water pipe network. This is surprising for many reasons. Let's start with the first one, 4,000 years ago. That's well before the Romans, and that's in the period of Egypt where they're doing some pretty good construction, but not to the level of distributed water networks of a residential scale. So the fact that this has been achieved is amazing. The fact that the Pinglangtai people were able to build and then, more importantly, maintain this advanced water management system with nothing than what we would otherwise consider Stone Age tools or without a centralised government system is a really impressive feat. It's an example of community-wide planning and coordination that is done without a top-down nation-state, king, emperor, you name it, telling you what to do. Now, what were these ceramic pipes doing? They make up a drainage system, which is one of the oldest complete systems to be ever discovered in China. It's made of interconnecting individual segments. These water pipes run alongside roads and walls to divert rainwater and help avoid floods. And this is all occurring in a Neolithic site, which is amazing to think about. But the handling of water is incredibly important. If you don't do things like this, then people's lives, people's farms, people's food, they're at risk. So there's a lot of reasons why a community would band together to undertake this kind of action. And that's what researchers... Now, when these researchers were digging in this area, in Pingyangtai, they found that there was little evidence of a social hierarchy. And this is important because social stratification, rulers, nobles, kings, leaders, these are not a given. The formation of these entities takes time to emerge and the right conditions. They're not guaranteed to happen. Just because you have a group of people doesn't mean you'll have an emperor. A lot of steps have to happen to form this collection in the first place. And a way you can tell that might occur is by looking in, say, the housing, which is what the researchers did. When they looked at all the houses, they were pretty uniformly small and showed no real signs of social stratification or significant inequality amongst the population. There are people there, but they were all at a similar level. Excavations in the town cemetery didn't see any evidence of social hierarchy in the burials. There were no marked difference from one burial site to the other, nor in neighbouring towns in the area. So there wasn't really a centralised authority, some noble, some ruler, some chieftain or emperor that would push through a large project like 
let's build pipes everywhere. And yet, with careful coordination, they were able to produce ceramic pipes, plan their layout, install them, and then maintain them over years. That's a huge effort for a community to undertake without someone enforcing a structure in place. It actually, from a community-led perspective, is amazing to think about the power of what a community can achieve on their own. Now, these pipes refutes an early understanding of the archaeological fields that has this idea that, ah, well, you know, you have a governing elite, and only a governing elite would be able to complete a large project like this. This is an example of that being done without any evidence of a large elite in place. Now, other ancient societies did have water systems that did have stronger centralised governance, sometimes even despotism, or rulers like emperors or kings, but in this case in Pinglantai, it's not always needed. You can get large engineering projects achieved without having such a strong ruler in the first place. Now, the ceramic pipes were a pretty amazing piece of technology for a time, but some even had decorations and different styles. Each pipe segment was around 20 to 30 centimetres in diameter and around 30 to 40 centimetres long. These segments were then slotted into one another to transfer the water over a long distance. Now, people can't really say how long the people of Pinglantai organized divided amongst themselves to build this, but it would have taken quite some time to cast and to fire all of these ceramic structures. And this would have really helped them in the rainy season. You wouldn't need a two-tier drainage system like they constructed to help get rid of all of the excess water, run it down drainage dishes to get it away from the houses and divert it from the residential areas to safe areas for the water to pool. This is great because you can also use that water in a defensive way to protect the village in the form of a moat. This is some pretty sophisticated engineering done collectively. And that's what researchers like Chang Hai Li and others have published in the journal Nature Water. A great example of monumental engineering being achieved with water over a long time scale without having to rely on a centralised ruler to get it done. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From large infrastructure projects in Auckland, New Zealand, discovering a treasure trove of fossils, to researchers in China unearthing evidence of large infrastructure projects collectively constructed 4,000 years. Infrastructure and agriculture often connect. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.